0: Uh, 23 through 33 23 through 33 If you found your way there if you'll stand with me we're going to read God's word together On that day some Sadducees who say there is no resurrection came to Jesus and questioned him asking Teacher Moses said if a man dies having no children His brother is next of kin shall marry his wife and raise up children for his brother. Now there were seven brothers with us and the first married and died and having no children left his wife to his brother. So also the second and the third down to the seventh. Last of all, the woman died in the resurrection. Therefore, whose wife of the seven will she be? For they all had married her. But Jesus answered and said to them, you are mistaken, not understanding the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. But regarding the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God? I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. When the crowds heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. can be seated. So Jesus has had a very long day at this point basically all of his enemies have come against him with various arguments and challenges and obstacles and things to try to throw him off or get him to say something that's going to incriminate him. And as we've looked over the last couple of weeks, uh, these are some pretty uh, technical challenges, things with the law, things with the government, uh, difficult scenarios for uh, Jesus to deal with. And yet we see how in his wisdom as a God, he's able to just navigate all of these challenges and is able to constantly provide correction. And so they have not yet been able to to trick him or to throw him off, but they're going to keep trying. And so in this passage, uh, the, the title of the message today that I want us to think about in the context of this is how to win a fight. There are some times in life that we have to fight. And Jesus is showing here in this example, as he does often, how to do that. And so there's, there's many things that we can look at. Obviously, on its face, this passage, uh, I would have said uh, a week ago, before I started studying this more, that this was one of my least favorite scriptures in the Bible, uh, because I happen to like my wife very much, and uh, Wednesday will be 14 years that we've been married, and I'm uh, content to be married to her for eternity. However, Jesus says here that that's not an option, that that's not how it works, and we're going to talk about that a little more, but I would have said this is one of my least favorite passages in the Bible because my plan was to get married once and to just stick to that uh, forever. And so uh, Rebecca and I joke about that all the time where she says, you know, can we just be married forever? And I say, unfortunately not. Um, So on its face, that's what it looks like this text is about, but it's really not about Uh, the marriage. It's not really about the marriage law. It's not really about uh, even just the resurrection. Jesus is is showing us some things that we can learn here about how to win a fight. Now, we're we're not talking about fist fighting, obviously. Jesus is not trying to physically fight them. If he did that, he would just kill all of his enemies. He was able to do that. Um, He made it clear that all he had to do on the cross was call down some angels, and he could just wipe every person off the face of the earth, and that would be the, the end of uh, his enemies. We know that when he returns, that will also be the case. There will be battles in the end, but there, uh, Jesus is not going to be straining to win in the end. When he returns and he says uh, "Every everything's over and he comes back as the king, uh, there's not going to be a whole lot of successful resistance to him. And so we know that if he wanted to fight these enemies physically, we would not be reading this story because uh, everybody would be dead most likely. And so what is he talking about? He's talking about a war of ideas. They're constantly coming to him with these ideas. And this is the, the realm that we fight in as believers. Remember, Jesus said his kingdom is not of this world. And so our goal as Christians is not to physically fight with people or to try to overthrow nations, even though that's been mis- misinterpreted in history as Christians trying to do that. Really, we're in a battle of ideas. Other people have other beliefs, other ideas, other perspectives, other worldviews. And the Bible only has one, and so we constantly come into the conflict with these other ideas and worldviews. So how do we win? I think Jesus gives us a really good example in this passage of how he deals with the Sadducees uh, as he's dealt with these other groups, the Pharisees and the Herodians, like we looked at last week. So before we jump in, I, I, I want to set the stage for you that, uh, of, of what is a Sadducee. This is a, a, not as common. We've dealt with the Pharisees a lot. You've heard about the Pharisees. The Pharisees were, were essentially kind of the religiously orthodox Jewish people. They believed in the whole Old Testament. They, they were very strict about their doctrine and observing Torah and the food laws and the ceremonies and the temple ministry and all these kind of things. They were kind of the, the strict religious orthodox Jews. So who were the Sadducees? The Sadducees would, would have been, the, a modern word that we would use would have been like the theologically liberal Jews. Um, they were more concerned with political power and position than they were with religion. And so while they would have been ethnically Jewish and they would have kind of participated in some things that were ethnically Jewish, uh, usually it was about money and power for the Sadducees. For instance, the Sadducees are part of the elite class. So one of the things that we haven't uh, really pointed out up to this point, we've talked about the Sanhedrin several times, you've heard that word, which is basically kind of like the, the high council of the Jews. Uh, similar to like their Senate or their Supreme Court, something like that, um, almost all of them were Sadducees. And usually the high priest was always a Sadducee. This is part of the hypocrisy that Jesus is constantly pointing out is you guys don't actually believe the Bible. You don't, you're not really worshiping God. This is more of a position for you, a political position that you're trying to get. So because this is the elite society of these Sadducees, they're also very pro-Roman. They, they are in favor of the Roman government. Why? Because the Roman government allows them uh, to have the positions of power that they have. Similar, last week we looked at the Herodians, how the Herodians were pro-Roman also, because as long as their family got to have a seat in power, then they were okay with the Romans, as long as they got to have their own little kingdom inside of the Roman Empire. The Sadducees were the same way. They were in favor of the Roman government, because as long as Rome allowed the temple to exist and allowed Judaism to exist. They, Rome wanted somebody that they could have in their pocket to be in charge of the Jews in case they got a little wild. And so the Sadducees were their part, were their political partners in doing that. They're also extremely wealthy. So most of, most of your wealthiest uh, rulers in the elite class of the Jews here were Sadducees because since they were in the Sanhedrin, since the high priest had that ministry, a lot of the commerce that happened in the temple uh, funded the Sadducees' lifestyles. So, for instance, you remember Jesus cleansing the temple where he's turning over the tables of the money changers. Well, guess where all that little bit extra on the top of your taxes is going? It's going to the Sadducees, and so they were extremely wealthy. And it's also interesting to know that, as as we've talked about earlier in this chapter, as Jesus has prophesied about the destruction of the temple in AD 70, uh, as far as we know from history, the Sadducees ceased to exist in, in AD 70. So when the temple ministry was destroyed, their entire ruling class was destroyed. All their money was gone, all their political power was gone, and they basically just kind of disappeared in history at this point. So these are the kind of people that are coming to Jesus. So so we want to have this in our mind of who are these Sadducees that are coming to Jesus? They are different from the Pharisees. The Pharisees would say, we actually believe that the Bible is God's word and we believe that it's true. The Sadducees would say, we're not so much concerned about the doctrine of the Old Testament as much as we are whether we get our money and our power. So these are the people that are coming. So how does Jesus win in this fight? The first thing I want you to see is is we need to notice the law here. Look at verses uh, 23 and 24. On that day, some Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to Jesus and questioned him, asking, Teacher, Moses said if a man dies having no children, his brother as next of kin shall marry his wife and raise up children for his brother. Now, if you notice, like in mine, I'm using the New American Standard here. If you notice that quote that they have there is in all, all caps, what that means is, is that they're quoting the Old Testament directly. And so this is pulling a passage from the Old Testament um, that is part of the law that they're raising up to, uh, to Jesus. They're confronting him with God's law. So a couple things that we need to notice about this part of the story. First, this is a draining day you'll notice right at the beginning, on that day, some Sadducees, well, on what day? On the same day that the Pharisees and the Herodians had just come to him, and on the same day that he's doing the preaching the parable of the marriage feast and these other parables. So Jesus has been teaching all day, and then he's now having all of his enemies come one after another and challenge him with this. Now, I I enjoy being able to teach, but I can tell you, especially the last couple of weeks, when I get done preaching, I am not ready to have lengthy theological conversations, and those of you who know me know that that's something I love to do, but uh, after a Sunday morning, if you try to catch me at three o'clock in the afternoon and ask me something other than what I want to eat, you're probably not going to get a good answer, because my brain can just not it cannot handle that much, and yet here's Jesus all day long. Constantly teaching and confronting these people, and these aren't even people that really want to hear what he has to say. These are his enemies. And can you imagine all of your critics, the people who have something negative to say about you, just coming for an entire day, just to to levy their complaints? And I don't like this, and you didn't do this. And does the Bible really teach this? And I, you know, can you imagine that coming over and over again, and just the exhaustion of of us as as human beings? Because we remember Jesus was a human man who had human limitations too. This is a draining day. So as the day is winding down, I mean, he's just been on the defense all day long and he's exhausted. Also, let's talk about the domesticated dogma here within the law. So what do I mean by domesticated dogma? What I mean is you'll notice uh, it says in parentheses there in verse 23, the Sadducees who say there is no resurrection. Well, what is that talking about? The Sadducees had had domesticated their, their dogma. In other words, they had made the Bible uh, very comfortable for them to accept. And the way that they do that is the way that a lot of people in modernity have done, which is to uh, remove the the supernatural from the Bible. So there's a lot of uh, scholars and others today who would say, uh, for instance, I heard one time, I've sat under some of these teachers, uh, the feeding of the 5,000 wasn't really a miracle where Jesus multiplied food. Everybody was hiding their own food And whenever Jesus preached they got convicted that they should share and they all pulled pulled their food out and so the the real point of the feeding of the 5,000 was that everyone learned to share well that's a that's a nice message for preschool but that's not what the Bible actually says happened Uh, they would say well Jesus didn't actually resurrect from the dead bodily he just resurrected in the hearts of his disciples there's liberal scholars that say things like that or uh, when it says that Jesus was born of a virgin, a virgin can mean young woman, so it just means that Mary was a young teenager when she had Jesus. It doesn't really mean that she hadn't been with a man. These are the kind of kind of things that are out there. It's not hard to find. You can look on the Internet. Uh, if, if you want to hear some of this stuff, watch watch a History Channel documentary on anything related to the Bible. They get it wrong every single time. They always get it wrong because those are the guys that they're interviewing. Why? Because... If the Bible says anything supernatural, then all of a sudden we have to have faith and we have to actually believe the claims of what it's saying. It's much easier to believe the Bible if it's not saying anything supernatural. And this is where the Sadducees, where they had domesticated it down to where they didn't believe there was any afterlife, so they didn't believe there was a resurrection of the dead. They didn't believe in angels or that people had spirits. They were basically uh, kind of atheistic in a way or, or a secular humanist where they would just say, Uh, the Bible is really just about us uh, good moral teaching and us just being nice to each other, and then we die and hope that we did something that matters that we're leaving behind. Does that sound familiar? Because that's kind of like the standard American uh, worldview right now. A lot of things have not changed in 2,000 years. And so Matthew just points out here, who are the Sadducees? These are the guys that say that there's no resurrection. (laughs) Just in case you were wondering... Um, And also, one of the distinctives of the Sadducees is is that they put the Pentateuch as primary over the Jewish books. So the Pentateuch is the the Greek word that we use for Torah. They both mean the same thing, but it's the first five books of the Bible or the books of Moses. Um, And so the first five books of the Bible, they felt like these are the books of Moses. They're more important than like the prophets or the Psalms or something else. And so Moses himself in the books of Moses did not write explicitly about the resurrection of the dead and about angels and so because of that we don't believe that they exist even though the other books do they're not as important this is where they ended up with that argument so jesus is exhausted these guys are coming to him that don't even believe in the resurrection of the dead asking him questions about the resurrection of the dead and what are the what grounds are they coming to him on they're coming to him on the grounds of biblical doctrine so this 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 idea that they have where they quoted in there if a man dies having no children his brother as next of kin shall marry his wife and raise up children for his brother. What is that talking about? It's a term that we we get called uh, leveret marriage from the Latin lever, which means brother-in-law. And so the idea was in Jewish families, it was very important for them to carry on their name. Uh, Judaism has always been a a small group of people. And one of the most important things to, to Jewish people, even today, is making sure that their culture and their faith is passed on to the next generation. So what do you do in a situation where you're not able to have offspring. You're not able to carry on that family name or that tradition. Of course, the Jews dealt with this a lot. A lot of times in war, you have young men, they die in war, they're not able to have children yet. Or uh, you would have, uh, be attacked by somebody. You could have illness that could come in. It was really common for people to get sick and die at a young age. You have all these different things that could happen. What do you do? Well, the provision that God made in the law is, is basically if, if a woman becomes a widow, uh, if her husband dies and she's not able to bring him any children, then it's his brother's responsibility who's unmarried to then take that woman as his wife, and the firstborn child of that marriage is considered to be the deceased man's child. And so if she were to have two children, one of them would be hers with her current husband, but the first one would be considered the the son or the daughter of the other man so that that family could continue on. This is the provision that God made to make sure that we that we end up with Jesus. Uh, for instance, if you read the book of Ruth, you'll see this doctrine worked out where Boaz is the kinsman redeemer. He's the one that is able to uh, bear this child, and yet in the process of that, we see that that's actually in the lineage of Jesus. So it was necessary, even for Jesus to be born, that this law was in place. So, the, so they're bringing this law to Jesus and saying, Jesus, this is what Moses has said. So think about the, the response that Jesus has. Jesus is ready to defend his position. They're bringing the Bible to him as though Jesus has never read the Bible. He's made it very clear up to this point with the Pharisees and others. Remember, we've talked about he, he, he's almost mocking them in a way constantly of, have you guys not ever actually opened the Bible and read? Have you never sat in the temple and heard somebody read the Bible, which is extremely insulting to these religious scholars? Of uh, Why are you asking me this question when you could clearly just go read the Bible and have the answer? And, and, and it's, it's a rhetorical question. The answer is we don't really care about the Bible. We care about getting you. That's really what it's about here. But Jesus is ready to defend his position. Are we also ready to defend our positions? They knew that he thought differently than they did. If they thought that Jesus agreed with him that there was no resurrection of the dead, this conversation wouldn't be happening. Which means what? Which means Jesus was very open about the fact that he believed in the resurrection of the dead. And so this is the grounds that they're challenging him on is, is there a resurrection of the dead or not, Jesus? Do people know that we think differently from, they do, from the way that they think? Did our friends and our family, people around us, do they recognize that we don't think like they do? They recognize that about Jesus. Uh, other, again, otherwise they wouldn't be having this conversation. But what about us? Do people just assume our coworkers and people that spend time with us, do they just assume that we think about the world the same way that they do because we don't talk about it? We have to ask ourselves, when situations come up and issues and not for the point of being contentious right we're we're not trying to aggravate our coworkers and our family members and our friends and others with our ideas that's not what we're trying to do but it should be pretty obvious that we have different ideas you can't really talk to somebody in america right now the way that things are for more than like five minutes without figuring out something about their politics let's just be honest it's pretty easy you hear certain words buzzwords or they make a comment about something you know an economic thing or a health thing or whatever, and you begin to put the pieces together of like okay, I can pretty pretty much discern where this person's worldview is at with that, but for some reason we just we're not able to do that with their faith, and the reason why is because Christians just don't talk about Jesus that much, they don't talk about a biblical worldview that much, and so it, it 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 would be a shame for some for somebody to say, "I have a pretty good idea of who this person votes for, but I don't know." Uh, whether they're a Christian or not. That, that would not be a good thing <laughs> for that to happen to us. So they knew where Jesus stood, and people need to know where we stand. When We need to be open about what we think God's word teaches, not in a hostile way to others, but in a helpful way and in, and in a loving way. And then we need to ask the question, if, if we are doing that, which I know many of us are, and when we strive to, we don't do any of these things perfectly, are we ready to back up our thinking with Scripture if we're challenged? Jesus is not being challenged on the opinion of the Sadducees here. He's being challenged on the word of God. They're quoting Moses and saying, Jesus, Moses, the authority, the one who was inspired by God to write these books, said this about this law. What do you have to say about it? And people are going to challenge us. And, And if you don't think that unbelievers will challenge you with scripture, talk to some more unbelievers. My philosophy professor in one of the schools that I went to had a PhD in religion from Syracuse University could quote more scripture than any of us in here and did not believe a word of it. And he would come to me and say, well, what about this verse? Or what about that verse? Or what about this idea in the Bible? Or what about when it says this? You know, what do you do with passages where it says that God commands Israel to kill the, the children of their enemies? That sounds really bad. An atheist will ask you that. If you haven't been asked that yet, an atheist will ask you that. The short answer is God does what he wants. That's, that's the easy answer. Um, but it's more complicated than that. But there are hard things in the Bible. And so they're coming to Jesus with these hard things, but Jesus is ready. He's ready to support what he has to say because, spoiler alert, the one kind of whispering into Moses' ear about what to write down was Jesus. Jesus wrote the book of Moses. And so they're asking him, well, what does Moses have to say? And Jesus is like, well, I'll tell you what I told him in other words. Uh, Or as he said later on, before Abraham was, I am. So we see the law here being brought out. Now let's look at the legend. Look at verses 25 through 28 here. This is the story that they bring to them, the legend that they're bringing to him. Now there were seven brothers with us and the first married and died and having no children left and having no children left his wife to his brother. So also the second and the third down to the seventh. Last of all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife of the seven will she be? For they all had married her. So we say that this is a legend because it's likely that this is not a literal story. Uh, the, the, the perfection of the scenario of it just happens to be seven brothers and seven this really significant number. And it just so happens that all of the brothers ended up dying and the woman didn't die before the seven. The scenario just seems too good. The story seems too good to be true, and it probably is. So, what, so they're asking him about this, this final marriage of, of after this woman has died, who, who gets to say that they're the husband of the woman when all these men have died? So what's going on here? Well, Again, as I said, when we, when we read this, we would read it and think to ourselves, well, this story that they're bringing here is really what the text is about, but it's really not. This is just on the surface. What's underneath of this is this is a trick that the Sadducees would use to silence the Pharisees. So when they're arguing with other, you can look in, in, in Acts at one of the points when they're interrogating Paul, and they've got Sadducees and Pharisees in the room, and Paul decides to throw a hand grenade in by saying, hey, I'm being on trial because I believe in the resurrection of the dead. And then everything just explodes, and the Pharisees and the Sadducees are yelling at each other, and the Romans are like, we better get him out of here before somebody gets hurt. And so that's how Paul gets out of trouble one time is bringing up this doctrine of the resurrection of the dead. So this was a constant argument between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and so whenever the Pharisees wanted to, wanted to get points, or whenever the Sadducees wanted to get points on the Pharisees, what did they do? They threw out this story. Okay, Pharisees, since you believe in the resurrection of the dead, answer this one for us. And this often stumped the Pharisees, apparently, because it seemed to be an effective tactic. They wouldn't be coming to Jesus with something less than their best argument. So they're coming to him and they're saying, listen, we, we've got the Pharisees for years on this one. Let's see how Jesus holds up on this one. So this is a trick. They don't really care about the answer. Remember, they don't believe in the resurrection of the dead. So whatever answer he gives them, they're not going to believe anyways. They, they, they're not interested in what Jesus actually has to say. What they want to do is get him to say something that will either aggravate the Pharisees and make them angry or aggravate the Romans and make them angry. The, the point is to get him trapped into saying something that's against Moses or against Rome, the same way that the Pharisees and the Herodians just did. They need grounds. So the one thing that the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Herodians, the one thing that they can all agree on is Jesus has got to go at this point. He's just causing too much trouble. This teaching is not, uh, is not helping us keep our power. So this was a trick that they're using. And notice, uh, notice their assumption here in the story. So they're assuming that the afterlife is identical to this life. This is the assumption that they're making. Well, if we get married in this life, then wouldn't we get married after we die? And so then that brings up the question of, okay, well, then who gets to be the one that's married after they die? Uh, there are other religions that teach this. For instance, Mormonism, which several of us in here have spent time talking to them. They believe that there's marriage after death. Uh, they, they, they see the afterlife very similar to this life. Now, I think, we, I think sometimes we err in, in, in not realizing that from what we see from Scripture— the, the afterlife, for instance, when Jesus returns and, and we're all there together with him, is probably going to be more similar to this life than I think we often realize. Some people have this idea, you know, we're, we're uh, floating on a cloud playing a harp for all of eternity. That doesn't seem to be what the Bible indicates. At the same time, there are clearly differences between uh, life in the fulfilled kingdom of God and this life. I mean, chiefly, that there's no sin that's the main difference, but apparently there's other differences and Jesus points this out to them and so they're assuming that it's the same because they don 't believe in the resurrection of the dead so that their their doctrine is not correct in doing this so the Sadducees uh, they did they did us a favor here we need to look at what they did and learn, and learn from it they showed us what not to do so if we 're talking about how to win a fight, they just showed us how to not win a fight how to lose when you 're in a fight of ideas when you have worldviews that are competing against each other, what should you not do? The the Sadducees are showing us this here. So what does that mean? There's a couple things that we have to do when we're fighting somebody's ideas, when we're fighting ideas with ideas. The first thing that we need to do is when when we're serious about really engaging another person's worldview, we have to be able to accurately summarize their position. So you can't fight with somebody about something that they don't believe, okay? And let's be honest, a lot of us in here have had that. We've had friends and family members Oh, well, you go to Barberville? well, y'all believe this? And they'll just throw something out, and you're like, "Nobody here believes that. What are you talking about?" That that happens a, a lot of a lot of times. And so, well, sure, if you want to hold that idea up and argue with it, fine, tear it down because I don't believe that anyways. Uh, there there's a, a whole lot of uh, doctrines and things that people argue and debate about this, but it's this, it goes the same way for us. It's not just us. If we're going to disagree with somebody we need to understand what it is that they actually believe and disagree with that. So one of the, one of the strategies that uh, my growth group in particular has spent a lot of time with Mormon missionaries here in the city of trying to evangelize them. One of my strategies is, is whenever I invite them over to the house, I tell them, here's what I want to do. You guys are here to talk about the Book of Mormon. That's cool. Let's talk about the Book of Mormon. I want to tell you what I think that you believe. And then I want you to correct me and let me know if I'm right or I'm wrong. And so I'll lay out for them what I think their theology is, what their gospel is, what they believe about God, what they believe about Jesus. And after many, many hours of conversations, I'm usually pretty close to what they actually believe, and they're kind of surprised about that. And so I say, okay, now is is anything that I said about what you believe, is any of that wrong? Is any of that incorrect? And sometimes they'll say, well, technically we wouldn't say it this way, we would say it this other way. Okay, okay. Why? Because I want to be fair. I don't want to just say, you know, well, y'all are polygamist and, and you know, uh, you, you believe all this kind of stuff. When they're like, well, we don't really believe that at all. Well, that doesn't help the conversation move forward. Then I'm not actually challenging their ideas. So I want to understand it. And then my response is, well, what, now you tell me what you know about what I believe, and I'll tell you whether it's right or wrong. And you know what the answer is? We don't know anything about what you believe. Great, let me tell you. And then I get like two hours to explain who Jesus really is and what salvation really is and what the Bible really is and that there is an actual hell and there is a judgment. And so then I have this open door to lay out to them, here's what my views are. Okay, now that you know what I believe and I know what you believe, now we can talk. When you say atonement and I say atonement, we don't mean the same thing. When you say Jesus Christ and I say Jesus Christ, we don't mean the same thing. When you say Heavenly Father and I say Heavenly Father, we don't mean the same thing. When, when, when you say uh, kingdom and I say kingdom, we don't mean the same thing. Now that we've talked about it and we know what each other believes, we can, we can challenge each other and, and we can have a, a real battle of ideas and a fight of ideas. So what is the mistake that the Sadducees made here? They didn't know what Jesus believed. And how do we know that? Because again, they thought that there was a consistency that there would be marriage in heaven and Jesus is clearly pointing out to them, if you had read your Bible, you would know that that's not what I'm saying. I never said that people were married in heaven. So why are you asking me a question about whose husband is going to be uh, who is going to be the husband of this woman when that's not something that I ever said that I was supporting? They're attacking an idea. It's called a straw man fallacy. They're t- they've held something up that's easy to attack and said, "This is what you believe, Jesus." And Jesus' response is, "Well, no, I don't actually believe that." So are you, gonna, are you going to attack something that I actually believe or not? And again, people will do this with you as a Christian all the time. They'll, they'll attack ideas. Would you believe this or you believe that? And you're like, actually, no Christians believe that. You know, Jehovah's Witnesses do this. They'll try to come to you. Well, the Trinity, that was invented by Constantine. No, it wasn't. <laughs> uh, uh, and, and my response to them, they're like, well, do you want to debate about whether the Trinity exists or not? No, we don't need a debate about it. We have a thing called the Athanasian Creed that all Bible-believing Christians have agreed on for 1,700 years. You should go read that, and that will summarize my position to you. That's what I say to them. Like, you guys, the burden of proof is on you. You're the weird ones. You have to prove what you believe. I I believe normal Christian doctrine that everybody's believe. So I don't have to prove it to you. You have to prove it to me. And so there's all these these kind of uh, arguments and things that happen. uh, And you have to be able to summarize a person's position. So you want to ask questions. You want to say, okay, what do you actually believe about things? The other thing that you need to do is you need to uh, attack in earnest. So like when you attack a person's idea, you gotta make sure it's a lethal blow. What do I, what do I mean by that? There are a lot of things that we can argue about. <laughs> uh, in the culture that we're in now, we argue about everything and a lot of times it's stuff that really isn't that important or really doesn't matter. So if you're gonna w- argue with somebody, make sure it, you're getting to the core of the issue, not the peripheral stuff. Uh, for instance, again, I'll use the Jehovah's Witnesses as an example. If you talk to a Jehovah's Witness about the gospel, if they come to your house and they're talking to you, they're going to want to talk to you about the Trinity. They're going to want to talk to you about church history. They're going to want to talk to you about the end times. They're going to want to talk, all this other stuff. Okay, now we can believe different things about a lot of that stuff and be saved. So the argument that we make isn't, I'm going to make an argument about the end times that's better than your argument about the end times. That's not going to save them. That's not going to tear down their false theology. If you really want to get at the heart of the problem with the theology of a Jehovah's Witness, it's that you think that you're sick in sin and not dead in sin. That's the heart of it. If you really knew how dead in sin you were, you would abandon any hope of working your way into heaven. If you really understood what, how holy God is, you know, they talk about Jehovah as the holy name of God, and if you don't use that name, you're not respecting him. My argument to Jehovah's Witness is my God is holier than yours. Because he's so separate that there is no way for me to be saved without him saving me. That's how holy he is. And so the solution to attacking him isn't debating with him about end times or Trinity or all this other kind of stuff. It's the holiness of God. Of You've brought God down to a level that you can reach, and that's ultimately your heresy, is is you don't know who God is. And if you really knew how holy he was, then you would cry out to him to save you because you would realize there is no other name under heaven where men might be saved other than Jesus Christ, as the scripture says. And it's not your name, it's Jesus' name that you have to be saved under. So you want to identify what does this person believe and then you get to the core of what is that, that core error underneath their worldview and you go for that. In other words, when you fight, you, you fight to win. You don't play fair, you play dirty in order to win the fight. You find out what's, gonna, what's the house of cards that I can pull that card out the bottom and the whole thing comes crumbling down. And again, we're not doing that in a hateful way, we're doing it because this person has been deceived we don't war against flesh and blood, right? We war against principalities and powers. That's what the scripture says. That, that Jehovah's Witness isn't my enemy. Satan is my enemy, and he has deceived that person into believing a false gospel. And you know what? I do want to destroy the kingdom of Satan. I do want to attack him. I do want to challenge him. I do want to respond to him. Not so that this person is harmed, but so that they're redeemed. That's the whole point. Because Sometimes all of us have been this way. Listen, even if you grew up in church or whatever, you have not been born again until you come to the point where your house of cards has fallen down, where you've realized you've realized I've got I've got nothing here. All I've got is Jesus. Everything else that I thought is gone. Everything else that I believed is gone, and he's he is my only hope of salvation. And so, part of what they are, they're, this is what they're trying to do with Jesus, right? If we can take the resurrection of the dead away from Jesus. And all his teaching and all his theology uh, will, will collapse. And all these people that are following Jesus will turn away from Jesus and he'll lose his power if we can just take away the resurrection of the dead. And this is their thought is that we're going to tell this legend, we're going to tell this story, and, it's, and we're going to get Jesus and we're going to make his house of cards come down. So then let's ask the question, did that happen? The third thing I want you to see in verses 29 through 30 is the lapse. But Jesus answered and said to them, You are mistaken not understanding the scriptures nor the power of God, for in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. So so let's look at how Jesus responds here. And again, we can learn so much from him. You, You have to remember, this is the wisest of all possible responses to this question, because you're talking about the wisest person who has ever lived. And so when we say, well, that's a pretty good answer, Jesus, it's not a pretty good answer. It is the best answer that could possibly happen. So we need to learn, because Jesus doesn't just say things accidentally like we do. Sometimes we say the wrong things. Jesus didn't have that problem. And so he means exactly what he says he means, which is why we believe the Bible, every word in the Bible, not just ideas that come from the Bible, but we believe the Bible itself because it is the way that God has said that he wants it to be, and he gets to decide what the words are. So Jesus says, you are mistaken, neither understanding the scriptures nor the power of God. So Jesus is setting the standard here. So they, they came and put Jesus on the defensive and tried to give him this argument where they tried to tear his house of cards down. They tried to say, if we can take the resurrection of the dead away from Jesus, then all of his teaching will collapse. As, as Paul says later on, right? If there is no resurrection of the dead, we have no hope. All, all of this is for nothing if there's no resurrection of the dead. And they knew that. If we can just take this one doctrine away from Jesus it'll all come crashing down. And what's his response? He sets the standards here and responds by telling them, you are mistaken. That's a very nice way of putting it. You guys don't know what you're talking about. You are not qualified to come here and ask me this question. And why are they mistaken? What what is Jesus' source of authority? Now, Now, here's the thing. Jesus, again, is the one that the scriptures say, everything that was made was made through him and by him. So he could have appealed to his own authority and just said, the resurrection of the dead is real because I'm Jesus, and, I, and all this is my idea, and I made everything. And I don't have to prove anything to you because I'm Jesus. He could have made that argument, but he doesn't. Notice what he says. You are not understanding the scriptures. Why, why do we believe in a doctrine called solo scriptura, that, that we believe the gospel is by scripture alone? The, this church does not tell you what the gospel is. The pastors do not tell you what the gospel is. There's not a pope that tells you what the gospel is. Your feelings don't tell you what the gospel is. We believe that scripture alone is the authority. And why? Because if the Son of God says, if you want to know the truth, read your Bible, that should be good enough for us. If that's what he appeals to and says, uh, go read your Bible, then what does he say to us whenever we're dealing with doctrinal struggles and arguments? And again, I've talked about this before recently when when we're doing apologetics, when we're defending our faith, when people are attacking us let's not assume that the bible is not enough to convince a person you might say well i don't know all the science and i'm not and i'm not a creation expert and i didn't watch all these documentaries and i don't have a degree in in bible defense science or any of this kind of stuff you don't have to have any of that what's jesus response go read your bible and so when somebody challenges us sometimes the answer is the bible says nate and i had this conversation a couple weeks ago in in our catechism Uh, How do I know that I have a soul was the catechism question, and the answer was because the Bible tells me so, and that is a good enough answer, Uh, and so if the Son of God who made everything said, uh, I know that there's a resurrection of the dead because the Bible tells me so, even though he was the one that invented the idea of resurrection, that uh, the afterlife, everything is all created by him, he still appealed to the scriptures. That, that was his source of authority, and it should be our source of authority. So what's the standard when we're conflicting with worldviews? When you talk to somebody that believes a different religion than you, or even within Christianity, they're arguing with you, what's the standard that we should agree on? Let's agree on what the Bible says. That's the standard that Jesus says. And if somebody won't do that, then guess what? You're not going to be able to reason with that person. If they say, well, I reject the Bible. I'm not willing to have that as a standard. Well, I'm sorry, I don't have anything else to talk to you about then. Uh, I I only have the source of authority of the Bible that I stand on. I don't have anything else. And so we're just not going to be able to have this conversation. When you're ready to really talk about Christianity, come back and talk to me and we'll talk based on the Bible, which is what Christianity is supported by. So he says the scriptures or the power of God. So again, why is he saying the power of God here? Because they're underestimating it. Remember, they have domesticated it. They have tamed God down to where he's not this supernatural God that has the resurrection and angels and all these kind of things. He's tamed all of that down. And Jesus is saying, you don't believe that God's powerful. That's part of your problem. Part of your problem is you don't believe the Bible. And I know that you don't believe the Bible because when you say that there's not things like resurrection and angels in the Bible, it's because not because you don't believe that the Bible says it, but because you believe that God's not powerful enough to do it. That God can't do it, the resurrection of the dead. So he's saying, if you actually believed in the power of God, for the resurrection of the dead, then you would understand that the scriptures do teach this, but you don't actually believe in the power of God or in the Bible, which is the reason why you're even coming and asking me this question. Now, that, that is a fatal blow, like what we talked about. Their house of cards is coming down now, because Jesus is saying, the reason why you're asking me this question is because you're not really Jews. You don't really believe in the God of the Bible. And if you take God away then guess what? You can't serve in the temple if you don't really believe in the God in the Bible. You can't receive the wealth from the temple ministry if you don't believe in that. You can't have the political positions. Instead of his worldview collapsing by them challenging them on the resurrection of the dead, their worldview is now collapsing by him saying, you don't believe in the power of God or the scriptures, which every Jewish person would generally agree on. So now, and remember, this is happening in public. So they're, they're trying to score a point against Jesus and Jesus just comes back and goes right to the heart of the issue. You don't believe in God. And that's what he accuses them of publicly. And this, they're, not, they're not expecting this to happen. They're the religious experts. So when we think about the power of God here, we've got to make sure that we don't end up in the same error that the Sadducees did. We need to make sure that when we gather information, we're also gathering power from God. That's two different things. You can learn a lot of words and a lot of ideas, and a lot of uh, uh, concepts, and doctrine, and history, and all that. You can learn a lot of these things in church, in Sunday school, in growth groups, watching things online, reading books. There's thousands, literally thousands of years of information out there for us to learn, and you can gather information that way. And that's, that's not a bad thing. We need to know what we believe. But you can have a whole lot of information and no power at all. And we've seen that throughout history. Uh, and, and, and even today, uh, you see these pastors that have this huge preaching ministry and then they fall away. Their, their character is not there. They disqualify themselves from the ministry and in some cases, even abandon Christianity altogether. How can that happen? Is because they gathered information but they had no power from God. They weren't born again. That's, that's how that ended up happening. You have to have both. So how do we do that? How do we get this power from God practically? God has given us what we call the ordinary means of grace. God has told us in his word, here are things that you can do that I will give you my grace in. Now we know that we have his grace and salvation. We know that we can't be more saved than we are because Christ has completely paid our sin debt. There is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So we know that our salvation is secure. But above and beyond that, God has said, if you want to be mature in Christ, which is different from being in Christ, you can be in Christ and not be mature in Christ. There are ways that I will grow you as a Christian. Well, what are some of those ways? One of those ways is gathering on the Lord's Day, being here right now. God has promised you in Scripture that if you gather together with your brothers and sisters in Christ, you will grow as a Christian. You will receive more power from the Holy Spirit by being here than by not being here. Uh, Singing is a a gift that God has given us to say, uh, the Scripture says the Lord inhabits the praises of his people. When we sing together, The presence of God is with us. The Holy Spirit indwelling in us strengthens us as Christians. I don't know about you guys. This is one of the reasons why we sing music the way that we do. One of the reasons why we don't have a full band on Sunday morning and you have to wear earplugs when you come in the building is because we need to hear each other sing. Why? Because God has designed that as a way that strengthens us as Christians. When I hear a 5-year-old and an 80-year-old singing praises to the same God together and I hear sick people and well people people that are struggling, people that are having victory. When I hear all of you singing on Sunday morning, it's, it's like medicine for my soul. I don't know if you guys feel that way or not, but especially sometimes when I, hear, when I sit up front, part of the reason why I do this is because I can hear everybody behind me. It blesses me and encourages me. If these are my people, and we're doing this together, and, and we're on the same team here worshiping the same God, and God has promised us that when we are praising him, he is with us, he's working in us to strengthen us. Prayer is, a, is an ordinary means of grace. There's nothing magical about it, but it's a matter of the same way that you call your friend or your family member up. Hey, how are you doing? What's going on in your life? We have access to the Lord. You can talk to him about anything. Even the smallest thing that you think isn't a big deal, he hears it and he's your father and he wants to actually answer that prayer and bless you. Even with the smallest things, not even the big things. And how many times do we not come to him in that and then we wonder, I feel so spiritually weak. I feel tired. This, this week has been really hard. This day has been really hard. I'm exhausted. Look at what Jesus did, the God-man. What did he do when he got exhausted? He went away and he prayed to his father. Why? Because he was receiving power from the father through that prayer. He was being strengthened to do what he had to do. What was he doing in the garden to prepare for the cross, to prepare to receive the wrath of God? He was speaking with his father and asking his father to give him the strength that he needed to endure that in his humanity. This is a gift that God has given us. The Lord's table is an ordinary means of grace. This is one of the reasons why we practice it every week. Why? Because we don't say, well, I'm not going to have preaching this week. I don't really need preaching this week, or I don't really need to pray this week, or I don't really need to sing. Do we really need to sing every week? Why can't we just sing once a month or a few times a year on special occasions? Do we really need to have the preaching of the word every week? We don't say that because it seems natural to us. Well, all these things are good for us spiritually, so why would we not do them? And yet often we neglect coming to the Lord's table. And as we say often, there's nothing magical about what's under that cloth right now. But at the same time, God has said, I want to continue. do this as often as you gather together. Do this in remembrance of me. So why would we not? If the so Lord holds out a blessing to us, let's take it every time that we can take it and, and and receive that blessing and say, God, I want you to grow me. I want you to give me your power. And so... Jesus is telling them, you don't believe the Bible, but you also don't believe in the power of God. If you're struggling with sin this morning, being here, singing out loud, praying, and coming to this table will help you in a real way. These are not just spiritual exercises that we're doing. If you find somebody that tells you... Go ask an immature Christian that you know, we all know some, right? Somebody who will say, I'm a Christian, I'm a member of such and such church, and ask yourself, what's the connection between their church attendance, their observance of the Lord's Supper, their prayer life, and their sitting under the teaching of the word and their spiritual maturity? There's always a correlation there. You will never meet a mature Christian that is cut off from the ordinary means of grace. This is one of the reasons why, by the way, in in times of church discipline, one of the ways that the church disciplines people is is refusing them from coming to the Lord's table. Why? Because it should feel like condemnation. I feel disconnected from God. Yes, because your sin has disconnected you from God. So repent so that you can be here in fellowship with your brothers and sisters in Christ and receive power from the Holy Spirit in your obedience. This is one of the reasons why we use those kind of things in order to do that. And so if you're feeling weak this morning, if you're feeling discouraged, if you're feeling like you're just struggling in your Christian life, God has held these things out to you and said, my grace is sufficient for you. Come, come to me. Worship with my people. Come to me in prayer with your request. Come to my table, and I will feed you spiritually. Right? He's invited us to do all those things. How often are we so hungry because we just won't reach out our hand and eat the food that's been given to us? Because we, we, just, we just won't come. And so come today and, and, and be a part of these kind of things so that you have power. People are not converted by ideas. They're converted by God's power. We have to remember that. We're not going to debate people into the kingdom. When we talk about how to win a fight of ideas, at the end of the day, it's the Holy Spirit that changes a person's heart, and how does he do it? Through the proclamation of the word, which again is why I I can't science you into faith with God. I give you the Bible, and the Holy Spirit takes that Bible and reveals it to your heart, and you're saved. That's how people are converted. There is no other gospel that they can be converted under other than repent of your sin and trust in Jesus alone for your salvation. That is the gospel that God has given us to give to people. So Jesus is setting the standard here. The standard of Scripture. So I'm not going to argue with you on your interpretation of Scripture. I'm going to argue with you on what does the Bible actually say. And he settles the score here. So he corrects their theology of resurrection and of angels. Do you notice that? You notice they didn't say anything about angels, and Jesus says, well, let me tell you about the resurrection. People aren't married in the resurrection just like the angels. In other words, he's saying, by the way, angels are real too. So what does he do? He doesn't just correct one part of their theology. He corrects the whole thing and says, you guys aren't just wrong about this. You're wrong about all of it. You're wrong about a lot, and he's pointing that out. He's settling the score with them. They came because they were trying to take away the resurrection of the dead, and he came to preach them the resurrection and angels and said both of these are real, and you're now wrong on two counts. And so this is not going well for them. As other people are watching and observing, how are they going to trap Jesus this time? Other people are thinking, the Sadducees at this point are probably kind of like backing away a little bit. This is not going how we planned. This is not looking good for us. But notice the consistency in Jesus' response. So his theology is not just biblical, but it's systematic. Well, what does that mean? That means that when the Bible teaches ideas, those ideas apply to everything. This is what we call a biblical worldview or a systematic worldview. There's a system of understanding the world that God has set up. And so when you say there's a supernatural resurrection from the dead, it makes sense to say that angels are supernatural creatures. Why? Because you're believing that the Bible teaches that the supernatural is real in general. So for instance, Jesus doesn't have to make the argument here that a person has a soul, which they would have denied, because he's saying by acknowledging these other things in the spiritual realm, it makes sense that the spiritual realm itself is real, and all these things are real. So we need to make sure as Christians that when we think about ideas, we also think about how they connect to each other. Sometimes it's it's easy to kind of disconnect certain parts of our theology or certain parts of the way we understand scripture, and we want to try to understand the big picture. This is one of the reasons, again, why we preach through books. Why? Why? Because there's ideas all throughout the Gospel of Matthew that if you just pull out verses here and there, you kind of miss. And when you look at the whole thing, you're going to see these big, uh, big ideas that are stretching throughout the scriptures. And so uh, we want to try to do that with everything in our worldview. So when you ask something about, for instance, the resurrection of the dead, you don't want to just get that from the books of Moses or from the Old Testament or from Paul's letters or from whatever. You want to look at the whole Bible and say, what is the whole biblical doctrine of the resurrection of the dead? And this is what Jesus is showing them is you guys are not, you're so focused on the five books of Moses, you're not looking at what the whole Bible is teaching about this issue. The final thing I want you to see is the living in verses 31 through 33. But regarding the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God? Right? They said, Moses said, he said, have you not read what was spoken to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living and when the crowds heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. Why were they astonished? Well, for one, God is declaring that, that uh, he's the same God yesterday, today, and forever. John Chrysostom said, he did not say, I was, but I am. The other thing is, is the covenants that God gives in the Old Testament are eternal covenants for an eternal people. So how, how can God promise that there was going to be a king on David's throne forever if people don't last forever? Eternal people. And Jesus isn't seated on it forever. He is the last king in the line of David and the fulfillment. Of it. Which means. Also notice it's, it's interesting here. We we hear the term he's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob all the time. Do you notice how this is different? He says, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Jacob. Why does he emphasize that? The reason why is he's talking about a personal relationship with three of them. So when he says I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, or I am the God that led you out of Israel, he's talking more about his, his office, of who am I? I am the God of the, of the Israelite people. When he does this personally, he's saying, I'm Abraham's God, and I'm Isaac's God, and I'm Jacob's God. In other words, I'm their personal God. I'm, I'm not just a God of a nation, but I'm a God of individuals. I'm a God of people. I know people. So Jesus didn't just die for a nation. He died for people like you. He knows you by name. He knows Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob by name. But here's the incredible thing. Here's the thing that that is blowing their minds. He is not the God of the dead, but the living. What does that mean? What that means is is when Jesus said this 2,000 years ago, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were alive. That's what he means, and that's what they understood it to mean. So How is Jesus defining life then? He's saying there is more to being alive than having a human body. He's saying that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are alive with God today, right now. They are just as much alive as far as God is concerned as they were when they were here on the earth. Even though they don't have human bodies at this time, we know in in the resurrection they will be given glorified bodies. We know that. We know that we're going to receive that. Now now think about how mind-blowing that is. For instance, this, 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 I thought about this in studying this. You know uh, Miss Eleanor, one of our dear church members, went to be with the Lord recently. What Jesus is saying here is that Eleanor is alive this morning. So the resurrection of the dead is a time when the living will receive glorified bodies, but it doesn't make them alive. They're not asleep. They're, they're not truly dead right now. Jesus is saying, spiritually, in their spirit, which is not an idea, it's, it's part of who you are as a person, is just as much alive now outside of their body than it was when they were in their body. And that they are alive today. And it, so, does it make sense why people were astonished to hear this? You're telling me that Abraham is alive now? And he is with, with the Father, and yes, he is alive now. All of our loved ones who are in Christ, are now living, even though they're apart from their body, for a time until the Lord returns. It says the dead in Christ will, be rise, will rise first. Can you imagine if Jesus returns and we see those bodies that we used to recognize as our friends and our families and others suddenly changed, as the scripture says, and given a glorified body, and seeing that person with no sickness, no suffering, no effects of sin, just in a perfected body, and then to recognize that that person has been there all along, and we just just didn't see it. So Jesus is not defining life as exclusively physical in nature. Now, I want to take just a second and talk about a doctrinal moment. I know we're running a little bit late, but there's a doctrine called the communion of saints, and I want to point that out because we have to be careful about what we mean by that. Uh, The Roman Catholic Church teaches a doctrine called the communion of saints, and what that means is, is that All of God's saints, living and dead, have a communion together with one another, that they're connected to each other as being in the family of God. Now, the way that they would apply that is, for instance, in the Roman Catholic Church, they will actually pray for the dead because they believe in purgatory. And so when a person dies, they think, you know, it's kind of a point system. The more that you pray, the less years the person gets off their sentence in purgatory, so you kind of try to pray them out after they're gone. Um, Obviously, we don't believe that. Scripture doesn't teach that anywhere. It's not a biblical doctrine that purgatory exists or that we should be praying for people who are dead. It is appointed under man once to die and in the judgment. So once you're dead, that's the only chance you get. However, we do believe in a communion of saints in the sense that uh, we are part of God's chosen people. And those who have died in Christ are part of God's chosen people. And those who are coming before us, some of the children in this room who are not born again, are a part of God's chosen people. And so do we have communion with each other? Yes. And spiritually, if Jesus is saying here that spiritually, you, are, you never spiritually die after you've been born again, that you are living even if you're not in your body, then we still have communion with those who have died. Now, again, the Catholic Church and some others would take that, uh, that's where they get prayers from the saints. If you ever wonder why do they pray to these saints all the time? It's because they think they're still alive. Now, we would actually agree with them that they are alive. But why would I pray to a saint when I have a high priest that's seated to the right, at the right hand of the Father? It doesn't make any sense. I'm going to go to him. You know, why would I pray to Jesus' mother when Jesus' mother isn't my high priest? I'm going to pray to my high priest. Um, he's the one that is the advocate for me. So this is why we don't pray to saints. So there's a little bit of truth there. So here's the mind-blowing thing that I want you to think about this morning. When we come to this table in just a few moments, do you realize that spiritually we are all we are all spiritually coming together as a local church and doing this do you realize how many thousands of other local churches are coming together today on sunday this is one of the reasons why we worship on the same day so when we take communion together we're not just taking communion in this church but we're united with all of our brothers and sisters across the world as god's people of saying we're all meeting together spiritually and we know one day we actually all will be in the same place together with all of those who have died, with those that we don't even know in the future, we all will be together in one place. And so we can't fully experience that now, but we get a little taste of that this morning when we get to do that. And that's an incredible thing. And so think about that as as, uh, we prepare to do that in just a moment. Father, thank you for teaching us how to fight. Thank you that your son Jesus uh, is the example for us Thank you that we have your word. The same word that Jesus stood on against his enemies and their ideas is the same word that we have today. Thank you for that. Thank you for his example of speaking the truth in love to these Sadducees. And Lord, help us to follow that example. We can think of someone right now that does not believe the gospel, that needs to hear the gospel, Lord, and we may feel helpless to try to argue with that person or try to convince that person, but What we see today, Lord, is that as your word goes out, your Holy Spirit will do the work in that person, and we just have to be obedient to speak that word. We thank you for our brothers and sisters that have gone to be with you already and those uh, who will go after us. We thank you, Lord, that we can look forward to that resurrection, that it's it's not a myth, it's not an idea, but it's real, and that there is going to be a day that we all are going to be gathered together and that you yourself will be there and we'll be able to take communion together with you. And so we just ask that you would give us hope as we look forward to that day, or as we deal with the challenges that we're dealing with now, health struggles, uh, emotional pain, broken relationships, addictions, besetting sins, all the things of this life. Lord, help us to look past that and realize that one day we'll cast all of these things off, and we'll go and be with you, and all those things will be in the past, and, and there will be no more tears. So help us to look forward to that future in Christ's name. Amen.